Lord God, we look to you right now. This is a holy time when we open up your word and you speak to us. Lord, we've read these words many times before, but we pray that there would be greater clarity given to us. Lord, that you would zero in and open up the truths that are here, that they would just impact our lives. The Lord, we would see your sovereignty and your glory and your majesty today in a way that we haven't seen this before. And that's my prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's read our text. John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We'll stop there this morning. We are in the middle of a series on the attributes of God, or you could call those the perfections of God. And we've dealt with some of God's incommunicable attributes, like his self-existence, his immutability, his omniscience, his omnipresence. And then we've talked about some of his communicable attributes, like the love of God and the faithfulness of God, the jealousy of God. Well, we came, last Sunday we began studying the sovereignty of God, and I knew that I couldn't deal with all the aspects that we need to think about in one message. So we talked last week about the sovereignty of God in creation and providence. And basically by that, we're saying that God was sovereign when he created the world. God could have created the world in many, many different ways, but the way he chose to create was the way that was for his own pleasure. And this is the working definition we gave of the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely free to do as he pleases and is in absolute control over all his creatures and all their actions. And we broke it down into 12 areas last Sunday. God governs the heavenly bodies, nature and animals, Satan and demons, political rulers and events, military victories, the bearing of children, random or chance events, our talents and spiritual gifts, the length of our lives, the afflictions in our lives, the good actions of men, and the evil actions of men. In other words, God is in control over all things. Even things like sin, God overrules all things. Now this morning, we're going to move from the areas of creation and providence, and we're going to move into the area of salvation, which is the most controversial area. I don't know any Christians that disagree that God was sovereign when he created, and then he's sovereign in providence. 
providing for his creatures and governing over their actions so that he can cause all things to work together for good. I think all Christians believe that. But not all Christians believe that God is sovereign in salvation. See, there's basically two different positions within the Christian church when it comes to this issue. All Christians believe that only some people will be saved. Right? We believe that some will be saved, some will be lost. There's really no disagreement on that. The disagreement is over, well, why are those who are saved going to be saved? What's the ultimate reason behind this sinner being saved and this one over here not being saved? And the two positions are this. One position says the reason why this person is not saved is because it was his choice. Or maybe I should put it this way. The reason this person was saved was because of his choice. And the other position says, no, the reason why this person was saved was because of God's choice. You see the difference? It's either the man's will or God's will ultimately is the is the determiner of who is saved and who is not saved. And so we have two different schools of thought within the Christian church about that. Now, I take the latter view. I believe that God is sovereign in salvation, that the reason why a person is saved is not because of him, it's ultimately because of God's will. The ultimate reason any are saved is because of God's choice, God's purpose, God's initiative, and God's free and sovereign grace. Now, as we've been moving through the various attributes of God, we've been culling scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and pulling them together to try to get a, a big picture of that particular attribute. But today we're not going to do it that way. We're going to stick within a text with, within John 6, 35 to 45. This is going to be our text. Um, now we will go to a few other spots to corroborate but this is our main stomping grounds of Scripture today. As we go through John 6, 35 to 45, I want you to see four truths. We'll call them four doctrines of sovereign grace. Four truths that Jesus brings out. Number one, the total inability of people to come to Christ. Two, God giving certain people to Christ. Three, God's irresistible drawing of people to Christ. And four, Christ's raising up those people on the last day. Those are four truths that are just, to me, on the surface. They're clear. They're distinct. We, it's really, really hard to miss those truths as we're working through this passage. So let's take them one at a time. Number one, the total inability of people to come to Christ. This comes out in verse 44. The Jews are grumbling because Jesus is talking about he's the bread that came down out of heaven. They're grumbling about it and Jesus says, don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, let's ask a few questions of this text. What did Jesus mean by come to me? The people he was talking to had come to him physically. They were right there talking to him, right? They weren't five miles away. They were there in his midst and they were having a discussion. So they had come to him physically, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a spiritual coming to him. Look back at verse 35, because verse 35 is going to help us understand what it means to come to Christ. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now this is an example of biblical parallelism. And parallelism is when you have two thoughts that parallel each other, that help explain each other. Now in verse 35, he speaks about hungering. In the next statement, he speaks about thirsting. Hunger and thirst. Parallel ideas, they help us to understand when you put those ideas together. But in the same sentence, he speaks about coming to him, and the next statement talks about believing in him. So believing in Jesus is parallel to coming to Jesus. Do you see where I'm getting that? Okay, so that's going to help you, because all the way through this section, Jesus is talking about coming to him. What he means is people believing in him in order to be saved. He's talking about being converted, believing on Christ, repenting of sin, putting your faith in him in order to be saved. Now, will all people come to Jesus? That's the second question I want you to consider. He says here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Is everyone who has ever lived going to come to Jesus and be saved? No, absolutely not. We know that because of Jesus' other clear teaching, like Matthew 25, 46. He said there, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's two distinctions. Those who go away into eternal punishment, hell. Those who are received into eternal life, heaven. Two different groups of people. And in Revelation 20, verse 15, it says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there are some who are thrown into the lake of fire and some who are not. The whole distinction between those two is if your name is written in the book of life according to this passage okay so we've we've decided so far to come to Jesus is to believe in him and be saved not all people are going to come to Jesus but verse 44 speaks about no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him think about that word can no one can come Jesus didn't say no one may come. There's a difference between may and can. If you have a little kid and he says, Mommy, can I have a cookie? You could say, well, you can, but that's not the right question. The right question is, may you have a cookie? See, may deals with permission. Can deals with ability. Jesus is talking here about ability. No one can or no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you see the difference? All people are permitted to come to Jesus. All people are offered Christ through the gospel. God offers salvation to all who will come. In fact, he not only offers it, he commands all people everywhere to repent. So he commands it, he offers it, he extends his invitation open wide, but John 6, is talking about ability. Does the sinner have the ability in himself to believe on Jesus Christ in order to be saved? Or does he need something in addition to what he has in himself? And Jesus says he needs something else. No one can, has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So how many people are going to come to Jesus who are not drawn by the Father? No one. No one can. 
Something else has to happen. God has to draw them. If God does draw them, then they can come. So Jesus' teaching here is he's pointing out the total inability of the sinner to be able to believe without something else from God happening in his life and in his heart. I, I hear preachers all the time say that everybody everywhere has the ability to believe and be saved. They have that ability because of their free will that God has given them. But Jesus in this passage is teaching the exact opposite of that. Do you see it? I hope, I hope I'm, it's not just me that sees it. <laughs> I see it right in, in, in red and white on, white on white pages. It's just there. Now, this isn't the only place in the Bible that teaches this. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, cut off from God, powerless to save ourselves. God commands us to repent and believe, but we are unable to do so without God taking the initiative and imparting saving grace through this drawing of the Father. So that's the first thing you need to understand. All people everywhere are totally unable to come to Christ unless something else happens that God gives. Okay? Second truth. God gives certain people to Jesus Christ. That comes out in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me just meditate on those words. All that the Father gives me. Gives me? What's he talking about? We've already learned that not all people will come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Well then, who are the ones that are going to come? The ones that the Father gives him. They're the ones that are going to come. All that the Father gives me will come. Not might, or maybe, or they have a chance. No, there will. They will come to Jesus. So, we've already learned the Father does, not all people will be saved, so does the Father give all people to Jesus? He can't be. Because if he did, they would come to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Do you hear that? So, if a person never comes to Jesus, he wasn't given by God the Father to Jesus. Does that make sense? These are hard truths, I guess. Uh, but, it, I mean, they, they seem to me very, very clear in his teaching here. So, we are left with this conclusion. There is a portion of humanity that the Father gave to his Son. Those people will come to Jesus, they will believe on him, and they will be saved. Now, does John mention anywhere else in his writings this group of people, the ones the Father gave him. And he does, many, many times. I just want to read several of these passages that, are, that come straight out of the book of John where he mentions this group. It's, the next one is John 6.39. He says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. There's another reference to all that he has given me. What's true about them? He's not going to lose any of them. He won't lose any of them. Look at uh, John 10, 29. Well, I'll back it up to 27, but the, the verse I want you to see is verse 29. 
Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There it is again. The Father gave these sheep to Jesus. These sheep hear Jesus' voice. Jesus knows them. These sheep follow Jesus. Jesus gives eternal life to these sheep. These sheep are never going to perish. No one will ever snatch them out of his hand. Why? Because the Father gave these sheep to Jesus. They're his gift. God gave a gift to his son. And they are these people. Okay, look over at John 17. Verse 1. Here we have Jesus' high priestly prayer. The night before he goes to the cross. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. You see what he's saying? God the Father gave Jesus Christ authority over every person, all flesh, for a particular purpose. And the purpose was that Jesus would give eternal life to a group of those people, not every single one, but a group of them. Who are they? The ones that the Father had given to him. Are you starting to see there's a group of people, God gave this group to Jesus. And Jesus' purpose in coming into the world is to save these people, these sheep. He came down from heaven to get them, to secure their salvation. Look at verse 9. Now here he says, I ask on their behalf, he's talking about his, his disciples, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus here makes a distinction between the ones the Father gave him and the world. He says, I don't, I'm not praying for the world here. I'm not, let me quote it exactly. I do not ask on behalf of the world. I'm not praying for them. I'm asking on behalf of those you have given me, for they are yours. Do you see it? This group of people that God gave to Jesus, Jesus is praying for them, not anybody else. He's praying for them. And then look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So, the ones that God gave to Jesus, Jesus says, I want them to be with me. I want them to see my glory. So what do we learn about these ones that God gave to Jesus? We learn that he's not going to lose any of them. We learn that no one's able to snatch them out of his hand. We've learned that he gives eternal life to them, that Jesus prays for them, and that he wants them to be with him forever. Okay. Well, who exactly are these folks? Well, we've already learned that they're the sheep, right? Jesus has already identified them as his sheep. These are the ones he came into the world to get, to save. The Bible calls them his elect, or his bride, or his church. Those chosen in him before the foundation of the world. 
That's the group that Jesus came in to get. He represents these people. He came as their representative. He became their surety. Now, we don't use that word surety very much, but a surety is someone who becomes legally responsible for the debts of another. Jesus came into the world to become legally responsible for the debts of his people, to take away their sin, to pay for their sin, so that they now could be reconciled to God, and that he would save them, he would redeem them, and rescue them, and bring them into the presence of the Father. You see, the bottom line is this. Jesus did not come into the world trying to save everybody. That's a common perception. But the Bible doesn't bear that out here. Instead, he came into the world not trying to do something, but to actually save his people from their sin. Uh, Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people, not the entire world, but his people from their sin. So the bottom line is this. God made a choice of certain persons before the foundation of the world and gave them to Jesus Christ as a gift. Jesus then comes to get these people by becoming their surety and their mediator, removing their sin so that he can reconcile those people back to the Father and that they will be with him, seeing his glory and worshiping the Father for all eternity. But the big question is, why were they selected to be part of this gift and not somebody else, right? Have you ever wondered that? I have many times. Why? And the short answer is, God hasn't told us why. (laughs) There's no clear place that I know of in the Bible that tells us why God chose one and not another. But we do know this, it wasn't because we were a little bit better than somebody else. Because every person is born into this world a child of wrath. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Every person, there's no different grades of deadness. You're either dead or you're alive. And we're all born into this world dead in our sin. So it wasn't because... I was a little bit better and and God liked me a little bit more than somebody else. Oh, oh, I think I'll choose you. It had nothing to do with us. The reason God made this choice has to do with something in him. And he has not decided to tell us what that is. Maybe someday we're going to learn. I don't know. Maybe it'll be hidden. I really don't know if God's going to share that secret with us or not. But don't never get it into your mind that it was you that made yourself to differ. No. It was free and sovereign grace that saved you. So, sometimes we speak of the doctrine of unconditional election, and that's, that's what we're talking about here, that God gave a group of people to his son. When I speak about unconditional election, I'm saying that God made a choice of certain people to eternal life, and that that choice was not conditioned by anything in them or anything that they would do. Does that make, does that make sense? Amen. Yeah. We didn't make ourselves to differ. God made us to differ. So that's the second truth. That God gave a portion of humanity to Jesus as a gift, and Jesus came to save them. Third truth. God irresistibly draws people to Christ. We get that from verse 44. 
But before we get to verse 44, I just want to look at verse 37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Every single one of those that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. We've already established from verse 35 that to come to Jesus means to believe in him in order to be saved. So you could paraphrase it like this. All that the Father gives me will be saved. You can make it simple. All the Father gives me are going to be saved. Some will be in heaven forever, forever and others will be in hell forever. What makes the difference? Whether you were given to Jesus makes the difference. All the difference in the world. But here's the really big question. How do people come to Jesus? How do they do it? Yes, the drawing. Absolutely. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Draws him. Now we need to try to figure out what Jesus meant by draws. Interesting word. The Greek word is helkuse. It's used several times in the New Testament. One popular view is that it means to beckon or to woo, to try to attract. So they say that what this means is that all that the Father gives me, I'm sorry, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me woos them. Well, let's take an analogy. Let's say you go to a well and you drop your bucket in that water and you want to draw that bucket of water up to the top in order to get a drink. Do you call down, hey, Mr. Water Bucket, I think you'd like it better up here. Look at all the fresh air and sunshine. Why why are you staying in that dark, damp, that well? I mean, why don't you just come on up? It's so much better up here. Please, please come. See, that would be to woo the bucket of water. That would be to try to beckon the bucket of water. But that's not what we do, do we? We lift that bucket of water by a superior force out of that well up to the top so we can get a drink. That's what it means to draw. It means to bring by a superior power to yourself. In fact, the uh, Kittle's Dictionary of New Testament Words defines this Greek word this way. To compel by irresistible superiority. To compel by irresistible superiority. The Puritan John Flavel defined drawing like this. To powerfully and effectually incline the will to come to Christ. That's what it means to draw someone. To powerfully and effectually incline the will to come to Christ. Now, let's see how the rest of the New Testament uses this word draw. And it'll help us. It'll give us some insight. John 21, 11. You remember the story. Jesus had been raised from the dead. His disciples are out on the boat fishing. It says, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. There's our word. He drew the net. He drew the net to land. What was he doing? He was taking his muscles and he was pulling that net onto the land. That's what it means to draw. It doesn't mean to say, here, fishy, fishy, why don't you come over here? It means to bring the fish to you, right? Um, And Acts 16, 19 says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them, there's the word for draw, they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. It's translated as dragged here, to compel by irresistible superiority. It's a good definition of dragging. 
Acts 21.30. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. There's our word again. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Or they drew him, you could say, out of the temple. James 2, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you? There's our word again. Drag you into court? So the word could be translated as drag. It's also uh, translated as haul in John 21, 6, when people were trying to haul in the load of fish. That's the same word, helkuse. So it can be drag or haul or draw, but it means to compel by irresistible superiority or power. Now I know there's one verse that everyone is probably thinking about. I don't know if you are or not, but anyway, Jesus said in John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up for the earth, will draw all men to myself. And that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of what I'm saying. So I'm going to save that verse for next Sunday. And we're going to have a Sunday where we talk about objections to the sovereign grace of God and questions. And we'll deal with this verse. Well, other verses too, like 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9, and various verses that give us trouble when we try to reconcile the truth of sovereign grace with the freedom of man's will. Okay, so in three of the four verses I quoted, the Greek word helkuse is translated as drag. The father compels some, not all, by an irresistible superiority to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, why would God have to exert such power to draw people to Christ? Because they're spiritually dead. Because no man seeks for God. Because their hearts and wills are bent towards sin because they're spiritually deaf and blind, because they're depraved and they're slaves of sin, they're not free, they're bound to their sin, they can't break free unless God himself were to break the chains. And so that's why God must compel some by an irresistible act of superiority and power to come to Jesus Christ. But getting back to John chapter 6, there's more that will help us understand this drawing. And it's in the very next verse. It's in verse 45. Jesus in verse 45 explains the drawing of the Father in verse 44. He says, It is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now in verse 45 he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45, everyone who has learned and heard from the Father comes to me. In other words, to be drawn by the Father means to hear and learn from the Father. It's to be taught by the Father. It's the Father giving a revelation of Christ to your soul. It's a supernatural illumination of truth that comes home to your heart and soul that makes all the difference in the world. Do you remember when Peter was questioned by Jesus, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you remember Jesus' response? Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. There's an example of John 6:45 right there. The father gave Peter a revelation of who Jesus Christ was. He taught him. He heard and learned from the Father. God, God taught him personally. 
And that's exactly what has to happen in every person's life in order for them to become a Christian. God must teach them. God must enable them to hear and learn from him so that they receive a revelation of who Jesus is, their own sinfulness and need of a savior, and the way of faith to appropriate that salvation. So there we have the drawing of the Father. Now, why, why would I speak about this drawing of the Father being irresistible? Right? I said, God draws some people irresistibly to Christ. Why would I say it's irresistible? Because verse 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And what happens when God draws him? I will raise him up on the last day. What does that mean? He will come. They will come, they will be saved, and they will be saved forever because on the last day he's going to raise these people up that he drew and they're going to be with him in heaven for all eternity. That's what that phrase, I will raise him up on the last day means. All those that hear and learn from the Father come to Jesus. That brings us to truth number four. So let's, let's just review a little bit. Truth number one, all people are totally unable to come to Christ. Number two, God has given some people to Jesus to be saved. Number three, the Father takes those same people he gave to Jesus and he draws them to Christ. Number four, Christ will raise up all of those same people on the last day to be with him forever. How do we know that? Well, because he says in verse 44, I will raise him up, the one that the Father draws, the one that comes to Jesus, I will raise him up on the last day. And there's four times in this chapter where he speaks about these people being raised up on the last day. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, who are these people that are being raised up on the last day? The ones that were given to him. And the ones that he will lose none of. Okay, there's, there's one verse. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Who is it? He beholds the Son. He believes in the Son. He's given eternal life. These are the same group of people that we're talking about. These are believers. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Same group, right? Believers, those who come to Christ. And then look at verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I, my, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's another example of a believer, someone who's given eternal life, and this person is raised up on the last day. Okay, so here's the question. If all of that's true, how long will a person's salvation last? Is it temporary, or is it eternal? eternal. It has to be eternal. Everyone who believes in the Son is going to be raised up with Jesus forever. Every person drawn by the Father will be raised up to be with Jesus forever. Every person who comes to Jesus will be raised up to be with Jesus forever. Everyone who is given eternal life will be raised up to be with Jesus forever. No one believes 
and then is not raised up on the last day. Do you see that? No one comes to Jesus and then is not raised up. No one is given eternal life and somehow forfeits that life and is not raised up on the last day. Now, the first 12 years of my Christian life, I didn't understand this, nor did I believe it. I, I saw certain verses and they persuaded me in the opposite direction. But man, when I come to these teachings of Jesus here, how do you possibly escape this truth? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't see how, honestly. So Jesus in John chapter 6 teaches in extremely strong language the absolute eternal security of every true child of God. No one is saved for a few months or a few years and then forfeits that and loses it. No, if he's given eternal life, he's also going to be raised up on the last day. Okay, so what does all of this teach about the sovereignty of God? Well, we've already learned that it teaches God's sovereign in creation and providence, but it also teaches us that God is sovereign in salvation. It is ultimately the sovereign will of God that determines who will be saved, not the free will of man. Jesus taught that all people are unable to come to him on their own. We refer to this as the truth of total inability. Jesus taught that the Father had given him certain people and that he had been sent to save these people. We refer to that truth as unconditional election. Jesus taught that people are saved because God draws them irresistibly. We refer to that truth as irresistible grace. Jesus taught that all those who are drawn come to Christ and believe and will be raised up on the last day to spend eternity with him in glory. And we refer to this as the preservation of the saints. In other words, God preserves those that he saves and keeps them. And they are secure in his love and in his power. So, three things I just want to leave you with to meditate on. First of all, my friends, be confident in God. Be confident. If you have a God that is sovereign in salvation, you can be confident. You're not confident in yourself. Never be confident in yourself. Be confident in your God. If being saved were all up to you and I, then none of us would make it. We're just too sinful and weak and fickle. But thank God it's not up to us. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Number two, my friends, thank God. Don't just be confident in God, thank Him. And we're getting back to the scripture we started with today. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Thank God, not only for your own salvation, but all the other believers you know. Give thanks to God for that. He deserves the thanks. And thirdly, imitate Christ. Colossians 3.12 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, that's how he starts, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, what? Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. He says, so those who have been chosen of God, I want you to do all of these things. Well, what were the things he tells them to do? They're the things that Jesus did when he came. They're the character traits of Christ. Christ possessed compassion and kindness and humility 
and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness. He's saying because you're chosen of God, be like Jesus. Do you see the point? So have confidence in God. Thank God. And thirdly, be like Christ. Imitate Christ because God has chosen you for salvation. Let's just stop there and let's pray. Lord God, we are so humbled in the dust and amazed, amazed, Lord, overwhelmed, Lord, that you would open up our heart and our eyes and teach us personally and draw us that we would come to Jesus that we would be saved, that we would believe. I pray, Lord, that we would never get over this. And I pray, Lord, that it would have a powerful impact on, our, on the way we live, on our practical bearing, our lives, Lord. Lord, we thank you that when we think about salvation, we can think about something that is rock solid, unwavering, cannot, cannot blow around in the wind, that it, it is solid. It is not going to change because your purposes are eternal. And the Lord, our confidence forever can be in your purposes and your work. In Jesus' name, amen.